The reading is taken from 1 Kings, chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, and that can be found on page 359 of the Pew Bibles. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call upon the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of, sh- of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, 
and pour it onto the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are burning their hearts, turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, thank you, Caroline, for reading that dramatic encounter from the life of Elijah for us. It is a fantastic story, isn't it? Um, But I'm taking as my text just one verse. Uh, Verse 21, if you're following on the sheet, where Elijah puts a challenge to God's people. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Which I think is striking. They had nothing to say. Obviously, as a prophet, Elijah had plenty to say. He was a messenger for God. One voice, one mouthpiece, with lots of other messengers in the day as well. 850, according to this account here, putting an alternative point of view, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. So they were messengers as well, I'm sure of that. They were religious for sure. They are not secularists, anti-God, They are pluralists, lots of gods, and therefore lots of messages from lots of gods. And that's why the people, I take it, uh, Joe and Jane Punter, the rank-and-file Israelite, that's why they are silent. They are sponges, soaking up all the religious communication, at which point Elijah has taken a risk, hasn't he? In fact, it boils down to a simple choice he offers. One message... Or the other messages. Take the God of Israel or take Baal, but don't try and take both. Don't waver between the two. It's make your mind up time, Israel. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, you could be forgiven for wondering why we're thinking about this anyway, and particularly why we're thinking about it at Christmas time. But I want to suggest that for all the superficial difference between that world and our world, this story is very relevant. I know that the talk of sacrifices and altars 
and prophets of Baal sounds pretty strange to our ears. But the idea of messages and communications is up to date, it seems to me. There are 333 billion emails globally every day, I'm told, in 2022. And that's when everybody's always saying that emails are slightly passe for our day. Quickfire, instant social media is much more likely to be how people get their news and information and ideas today, not sitting in front of a computer screen or tapping a keyboard. Fear of missing out, or FOMO, means we want mobile communication with us, in our hands, at all times, just in case we might miss out on some news, big or small, which everyone else but me knows about. We crave communication, don't we? And that shows in lots of ways. It shows on the world stage, in the public eye. You think about it. How does somebody move forward from making the rich list for their electric cars like Tesla or for space travel? How do you move forward from that? Well, you move from motors to media. You take over Twitter. I understand that's the way to do it. Or on the small scale, it'll be seen on the street or in our homes where, for example... This is one I've just uh, noticed and witnessed. Three people sitting at a birthday party right next to each other. So there was absolutely no social distancing physically anymore. We're glad to be relieved of that. But there was social distancing of a different kind because all three busy chatting to people elsewhere on their phones. What does it all tell you? Well, it's clear that messaging matters. We all think that. Communication is king, never more so than after two Christmases of isolation at the very time when we crave closeness and relationship. So in that context, it seems to me that Elijah, as a message bringer, God's mouthpiece, with a word from the Lord, well, we can relate to that, can't we? That's a world we live in where communication matters to us. Now, we've reached, as Edward said, the last of our series, looking at a cast of characters from the Old Testament, looking forward to the coming of the Christ. And you might have wondered who my fifth character would be, number five from our selection after, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. I want to suggest that Elijah, the 9th century prophet, 9th century BC prophet, is the strongest option available, particularly when you factor in the link to Jesus Christ, which we've been trying to establish from the whole cast of characters that we've looked at. To make the case for that claim, let me take you to another mountain, a mountaintop moment in the life of Jesus himself. This is uh, a key point in the life of Jesus, or particularly within his three years with his disciples. Peter had just clicked that Jesus is the Christ, God's special king. And Jesus goes straight on to say, it's a bit of a surprise, yes, but. I am the Messiah, yes, but I'll be rejected and crucified. Then the three hand-picked disciples climb a mountain with him and they see Jesus transfigured before their very eyes. He's wearing a glory that he always had, but which they didn't normally see. And he's certainly keeping company that they didn't normally see, because Moses and Elijah were also there, two giant messengers of God. 
Moses, symbolic of the law, Elijah, the champion of the prophets. So the two together really are the twin pillars of God's revelation, the law and the prophets. And they're there on the mountain with Jesus and those three disciples. But the sequel to that moment is very striking. There's a voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Then the disciples remember looking all around. And instead of six people, there were just four. Three disciples and Jesus. No Elijah and no Moses. They'd been messengers in their day, for sure. They still speak. But now the great communication from God has come. The word made flesh that first Christmas. Elijah and Moses have done their job, and they disappear from the Mount of Transfiguration. Now it's time to listen to him, to Jesus. Now, in the life of Elijah, as God's messenger, the call to listen to God through him was very dramatic. Uh, you could be forgiven for not remembering the details, but in the 9th century B.C., Bad King Ahab and his pagan queen, Jezebel, really had sold out to worshipping the local fertility god, Baal. He was supposed to be the god that looked after the agricultural economy. So it made sense, they figured, to share your loyalties around a bit. Yes, we could worship the Lord, of course, but wouldn't it be safest also to put a few shares in with Baal, as it were? And Baal's PR, as the god who looked after the agricultural economy, has suffered a bit because there's been no rain for three years in Israel. Some good worshipping Baal has done us, people might be thinking. Now, if you know your Old Testament, lack of rain in Israel is one of the curses which comes when Israel has been unfaithful to the Lord. The deadly deeds were predicted as curses that would fall. God had promised they would happen. Disease, defeat, one one person fleeing from a thousand, uh, turning, turning tail from the enemy. Disease, defeat, dearth. I had to find another D that really speaks for famine. Or drought, the one we have in 1 Kings 18. That had happened. And those Covenant curses had fallen because the covenant with the Lord was in tatters. The people had turned from him. They'd shared their loyalties with other gods. So the drought was nothing to do with Baal taking a break or letting them down. This drought was from the Lord, the true God, as a judgment on his people because they had been unfaithful. But just before this incident, in fact, in Verse 1 of the chapter that Caroline read to us from. The Lord had promised that rain was on the way. After three years, it was coming. But hold on, not so fast. If rain comes, people could easily say, Baal had sent it and Baal would be off the hook again. People might think, well, we should follow him. So this mountaintop showdown in 1 Kings 18 happens And everybody's there for it. It's on primetime TV to show that the rain comes from the Lord, not from Baal. The prophets of Baal pray, 
and nothing happens. No one answered. No one heard. It's put beautifully twice with those lovely brief sentences. Elijah does everything to demonstrate that only the Lord could do it. Gallons of water are poured on the sacrifice, and he prays that very horizontal prayer, Lord, show them that you're the one true God and that you're turning their hearts back to yourself. And then in answer to that prayer, to the Lord, the fire comes. And it's a fire that is like no other. Those fires burn upwards. The wood burns underneath the sacrifice. Not this one. God's fire falls on the sacrifice, and then the wood, the stones, the soil, the trench filled with water, and so on. It burns downwards. It's a supernatural way of doing it. It could only be him. He answered prayer. And, of course, everybody saw it and identified that the rain had come from the Lord, as indeed had the drought. Then, and then only, the rain comes. So what's happening in this chapter is an amazing miracle in answer to prayer. A miracle is authenticating the messenger, the prophet. You don't get miracles on every page of the Bible story. They don't happen every day as you turn the pages of the Bible. They don't actually happen. I would suggest we shouldn't expect them on every page of our lives either. Am I saying God is not involved in his world? No, I'm not saying that. But they don't happen every day. If they did, they wouldn't be called miracles. We'd have to find another word for it. Predictables, we could call them. But they're not there predictably in the course of our lives. God governs the world 100% of the time, but normally he does so predictably according to the laws of nature. When God interrupts the normal laws of nature and acts supernaturally in the Bible, it is to draw attention usually to what he's saying. And the miracles, therefore, cluster around the key moments of revelation where God is making himself known through people normally, often through the prophets. So when everybody's listening to false prophets, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah in this case, Miracles authenticate the true messenger. Something similar happened in the life of Moses when he was giving the law. There were lots of miracles then. It happened with the great prophet Elijah here. And there are other miracles. Miraculous provision of food, raising the dead, and then this one amongst others. All saying, listen to my prophet and stop listening to those other voices. And the clue is in the name. Elijah means the Lord is God. That was the challenge of that day. The miracle bore it out. So the challenge is very apt. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. There's just one other telling reference I want to mention about Elijah, which shows why he is linked to Jesus' coming at Christmas which is in the last book of the Old Testament, where it says in the prophet Malachi that before God comes in person as the great word or messenger, another messenger will come before that, a loudspeaker to give advance warning that the great arrival of God himself is about to happen. He's given the name Elijah, 
But Jesus was clear that the fulfillment of that prophet Elijah was his cousin, John the Baptist. So 900 years after the great prophet, or 800 years after the great prophet Elijah, in dark and dismal days for God's people, John the Baptist is born just months before Jesus comes, the first Christmas. And when those two cousins have grown up, John the Baptist bursts onto the scene, looking and sounding like Elijah as the messenger who prepares the way for the message, Jesus. John was baptizing and preaching just before Jesus went public and preached for three years before he died on the cross, on the, on the cross for our sins and before he rose from the dead. I talked about miracles attesting the, the messenger. Well, there are more miracles per square inch of life with Jesus Christ from his amazing, stupendous birth onwards, aren't there? Jesus Christ is God's great message to humankind, the word made flesh. God speaking to the human race in a language we can all understand, the message. But the sending of John the Baptist before him and Elijah before him is underlining and putting in bold what God is saying in Jesus Christ. God was sending a message about the message. As if God's saying all down the years through the Old Testament, through Elijah, through John the Baptist, Elijah Mark 2, have I got your attention? I've got something really, really vital to say to you all. I know I've told a story um, in this pulpit before. And it's a story that is a tall story. There are so many different versions of it circulating on Wikipedia that it can't really be accurate, but it's a great tale anyway. So I'm going to tell it as if it is a true one. This is originally slated to have happened as a conversation on the radio between Canadian and American naval officials off the coast of Newfoundland, apparently released by the Chief of Naval Operations on November the 10th, 1995. Americans... Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We're accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. We demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north. Or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your choice. The moral of the story is nothing to do with uh, lighthouses or communication. But, but God has been giving that warning, saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. My message, you must heed it, listen to him. All through the years, the prophets are saying it. Don't waver between two opinions. Don't listen to the siren voices. God is speaking. Has he got your attention? He wants to be in relationship with you. For that to happen, you must hear his voice. 
He's speaking in Jesus Christ. Don't charge on through life as if there's no word from God when there is. God's saying to us this Christmas, don't waver between two opinions, doing the spiritual split between Jesus and whatever popular creeds, secular or religious, you're tempted to give your allegiance to. How could you, when in mighty miracles, God has attested this message of Jesus Christ? Could he have shown us any more dramatically than he did that Jesus is the one true God, entering our world as he did in that first Christmas, blowing our reality apart with the amazing things he said, And the wonderful things he did. Dying for our sins. So that we can know God for ourselves. And I simply want to encourage you as I encourage myself. Whether you've had an acquaintance with him for years. Or if it's all fairly new to you. This Christmas please. Hear God saying to you. This is my son. With whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Amen. Thank you very much, Simon. We're going to have our final carol now, a carol that addresses various different groups of people, the angels, the shepherds, the sages, and the nations. A call for all of them to gather, to listen to the Lord Jesus, to worship at his throne. Let's stand to sing. from the realms of glory wing your flight o'er all the earth ye who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth come and worship Christ the newborn King in the fields abiding watch your four flocks by night God with man is now residing yonder shines the infant light come and worship Christ the newborn King visions beam afar seek the great desire of nations 
ye have seen his nasal star come and worship Christ the newborn King. Christ the newborn King. Though an infant now we view him, he will share his Father's throne. Gather all the nations to him, every knee shall then bow down. Please do have a seat. We're almost at the end of our service now. Uh, we'll be teas and coffees, very kindly prepared for us by Charles Kingdon. Uh, I should note there's a few of these little booklets at the back, Christmas in Three Words by Vaughan Roberts, Christmas in Three Words, nice little red booklets. And please do take those away for yourselves or for others um, as you'd like to. A nice gift um, for a neighbour or friend or a colleague or family member at Christmas time to go with uh, a parcel perhaps final prayer at the end of our service. Christ, the Son of Righteousness, shine upon you.